Hey friends, you're listening to the Hope and Heart Pills podcast, where we are exploring practical insight for racial justice and social change. I'm your host, Andre Henry. Joining me from North Carolina is my co-host, Alicia T. Crosby. How you doing, Alicia? I'm doing pretty good this morning, and I know that ordinarily I talk about my excitement for the show, but today I'm going to talk <laughs> about your excitement for the show. Um, so, y'all, this week's guest is Serja Popovich, and I know all about Serja because of my relationship with Andre. So, Serja is an activist organizer um, who is just brilliant and has written books, um, which we will recommend later on in this podcast. But Andre was super excited when he got to interview him. Like, I definitely remember when this conversation took place because of how pumped you were. (laughs) So the reason why I was so excited to talk with Serja is because Serja is a, is a prominent figure when you're reading about nonviolent struggle. Um, When you're reading about nonviolent struggle, you're going to come across a few names. You're going to come across Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. You're going to come across Mohandas Gandhi. You're going to come across Gene Sharp if you're going down the rabbit hole um, deep enough. And you're and if you're down there, <laughs> you're, you're going to come across Serja Popovich because um, Serja co-founded an activist group that took down a dictator in Serbia in the year 2000 or late 90s. Now, when I read Serja's book, Blueprint for Revolution, I was on this or I'm the quest that I'm still on to understand how societies change through nonviolent struggle. And what I loved about Blueprint was that it's funny, it's hopeful, and it is a good summary of so much of the work in the field of nonviolence. And it is so readable. Like so much of the stuff that I've read is kind of hard to read, but this was actually a pleasure to read. And Serge's email was in the back of the book. <laughs> and I remember thinking as I was oh, reading it, accessibility. Gosh, I wish I was like, gosh, I wish I could talk to this person. And he put his email in the back of the book and said, reach out anytime. And so I did. And I ended up going to a class, not going, but taking a class from Harvard on leading nonviolent struggle that Sergio was one of the professors for. And so it's been really cool to kind of get to know him over over uh, the past couple of years and for him to to decide to be on our show. absolutely i mean i think the thing that i'm encouraged by in addition to andre's excitement is understanding that there are other people all around the world who were ordinary people and decided to stand up for the sake of social change and it really did make a difference and so with that we're going to introduce you to Serge popovich have fun listening to the interview y'all no it doesn't have to be doesn't have to be this way. Doesn't have to be. No, it doesn't have to be this way. Hi, Sergio. How are you doing? Oh, great. Uh, springy weather in Serbia. Hi, Andre. Great to reconnect with my favorite Harvard student. <laughs> I am so honored and excited to talk with you today. Thank you so much for your time. Pleasure all mine. Uh, Sergio, I am always bragging about your book, Blueprint for Revolution, and telling everyone that they should read it um, because of this incredible story of a bunch of college students, if I'm correct, that banded together to take on the dictatorship of Slobodan Milosevic. And I wondered if you could just really, really briefly 
like kind of set the scene of the setting of where that happened? What was Serbia like when you and your friends decided that something had to be done? Uh, okay, we are talking about uh, 90s in Serbia when I was in, uh, in, in my early academic years. And of course, I never thought I would be an activist. I thought the activism is the, the business for old ladies uh, standing for dog rights. <laughs> <laughs> and wasn't really something cool. I was more into into dating girls and playing in a rock band. But then the situation changed, and then we got a really bad and kind of crazy uh, national leader called Slobodan Milosevic. And within the range of several years, from 991 when he climbed to power to maybe 993, he already started two national wars, followed by ethnic cleansing, uh, hundreds of people leaving country, including my own brother, uh, hyperinflation, uh, eaten the middle class. So you, you see your world is falling apart around you and as a young young person of course uh, you have two choices one is to flee and go to the place where we have perspective another one is to fight and mm. i bet my, my generation was among the stubborn ones uh, so yes there was a breaking point in it the breaking point was uh, watching the serbian uh, super band connected of the of the five most famous rock bands at the time uh, singing from the truck their anthem they created as a as a kind of national cry out against the lunacy and nationalism and war. And it was uh, in early 90s and walking behind this truck, uh, specifically recognizing all of the people around me who were more into playing in bands and less into activism. Wow. I understood that activism can be something for everybody. Uh, we soon jumped into the students' protest. The first one was 992, the second one 996. 97. In 1998, we formed a movement called Otpor, which is the Serbian movement for resistance, which was which grew from 11 people into 70,000 people in 2000, wow. and was pivotal in in bringing down Milosevic at the time. Wow! I in the documentary, I I can't remember what the name of it is. It's taking down taking down the dictator. Is that bringing the, down the dictator? Bring, yes, bringing down the dictator. Bringing down the dictator. Mm -hmm. I I've seen. So I see these scenes of some of you guys like in a room and there's a like a whiteboard and some education going on. And I know that Gene Sharp's work came into the picture somehow. What was the role of of educate of that kind of education in the movement? Uh, well, first of all, uh, the principle uh, that you can find across the world is that educating your movement is far the best uh, investment you can make into it. First of all, when you take a look at people power movements, uh, they rely on people. Mm -hmm. uh, the more people are engaged, the more people invest into movements. And of course, the more skills and knowledge people have, the more successful movement is. Uh, so Otpor very early understood this process. We had a lot of experienced activists. And then we start sending them to the grassroots level to train activists on how to effectively take charge, how to effectively brand things, how to effectively makes short spanks, how to avoid confrontation with police, how to talk with different uh, political and social groups. Uh, so there was a very strong uh, training component. And there is a direct correlation between how much you invest into your movement and the effectiveness of the movement. So training your activists early in a process, from day one, when somebody joins the movement, you bring this person to the meeting, you spend one hour talking to this person about what this movement is all about, what is the strategy, what is the tactics? And uh, you have far better chances that people will, will come back because people love when you talk openly to them. People love when they feel you're investing something into them. And if you're ready to invest something in your movement member, they're very likely to invest their time and energy into the movement. So educating your activists, working on skills and knowledge, thinking, listening to their needs and, and their ideas and turning their ideas into reality uh, makes a good quality 
movement. Uh, it is the affiliation with the movement that grows uh, with this education, but it's also the affiliation of the movement which grows uh, with the tactics you offer. Uh, one direct correlation is is uh, between what you're offering to the people and, and the level of risk. Mm-hmm. The less risky, the more humorous, the more cool the activities you offer to the people, and uh, they are more likely to participate. Yeah. Not too many people will spend all day on the march. Not too many people will risk confrontation with police. Not too many people, and my organization works with people from autocratic countries where you can lose job, uh, you can lose freedom, or worse, if you demonstrate against the government. So mm-hmm. not too many people will take this risk. So the quality and, uh, and the speed of, uh, of, of the evolution and growth of your movement is in direct correlation in what you can offer to them. So you're looking at the low-risk tactics, you're looking at wearing badges, you're looking at graffiti, mm-hmm. you're looking at stickers, you're looking at hitting at pots and pans. You're basically looking at a thing where people can participate, can feel that they're doing something meaningful, but still can get away with it without a large risk or large or large investment. Right. Okay, so I want to ask you one more question about um, Otpor, and then I want to ask you some more broad questions about um, struggle and how ordinary people can be involved. Was there an armed struggle going on at the same time, or were there people who were using more violent tactics, whether it was organized or a little disorganized, at the same time as the nonviolent movement? Uh, in Serbia, there was no, there was no, there was no violent struggle. In parallel, there were many movements uh, like the African struggle for uh, against the apartheid in South African mm-hmm. Republic, which had this this guerrilla component. And first of all, uh, when you take a look at the success in the nonviolent struggle, you're always all outlining three principles. However, struggles are different. If you stick to the unity and if you build the unity of people and unity of purpose and unity within the organization, if you develop the strategic and tactical planning, and if you hold on to nonviolent discipline, you are more likely to win. And I will mm-hmm. emphasize uh, this nonviolent discipline very strong. Uh, there are several reasons why nonviolent discipline is paramount. First, uh, it uh, increases the participation. If you are holding the protestable type of demonstrations where people can come with kids and dogs, more people are likely to come. Right. If, however, <laughs> your demonstrations are looking alike the actual demonstrations of Yellow Wests in, in uh, Paris, where people are burning cars and, and throwing Molotovs and fighting with police, your participation will go down. Right. So the higher the risk of, of violence, the lower the participation. It's a common sense thing. Right. Second, it's your appeal to the society. Uh, if you really are looking into the, the nationwide democratic change or human rights change or uh, racial equality change in the society, you need people from the middle of the political and social spectrum. In order to get to the people in the middle of the, of the political spectrum, you need mainstream tactics. Extreme right. tactics doesn't work. Right. Extreme tactics are only fueling the people on the extremes from the both poles. And when mm-hmm. you're looking at the racial struggle in uh, in U.S., for example, uh, you are when you're looking at the alt-right and the Antifa response to the alt-right, they're actually mutually feeding each other. Mm-hmm. While the people in the middle are too scared or too shocked to get into this struggle. So when you're looking at the nonviolent discipline, it's not only a word, it's something you exercise in the movement. In Serbia, we, we were looking at the la- several layers of it. We were preaching nonviolence. The day one, you would you would be joining the movement. We'll tell you that our goal is to change the government through the nationwide participation in elections. That we abstain from violence. You're doing it through the addressing the security forces by trying to convey them to your side by feeding them and giving them flowers instead of throwing stones to them. You're also looking at what are potentially violent groups that can share your vision but don't share your methodology yeah. that can come and interrupt your demonstrations and you right. avoid to be affiliated 
with this violent group. So whether this is a preaching level, strategic level, or tactical level, you try to avoid violence and, and armed struggle at any costs. In right. fact, there is a huge academic study led by a guy named Kurt Schock, who is also a good friend of ours. He teaches at Rutgers, which scientifically proves that it was actually the military flanks or the guerrilla flanks that were harming the participation in nonviolent movements throughout the history. Oh, wow. Okay. So I want to ask you about some of the principles and how they can be applied in America and other parts of the world who might be listening to this interview. What stands out to me is that Otpor built a national movement. And in America, when we're talking about racism, a lot of times it's hard to think beyond the local level or to move beyond the local level. How does a movement build capacity to confront a national problem? Uh, that's, a, that's a great question, especially in a, in a large country like America. First of all, you're looking at the history. So how the civil rights movement grew from uh, the movement uh, fighting from se separation and desegregation of the toilets and public transport in Southern American state into something which had a broad appeal. And of course, uh, that means that movements need a nationwide vision. And that vision should be shared not only by the social groups affected, but also by the wider population. And whether you're looking at inspirational worlds of Martin Luther King and his I Have a Dream speech, or you're looking in a, in a more, uh, more defining documents of the civil rights movement, you need this vision very well formulated and appealing to various parts of society. Mm -hmm. uh, second, you need strategy. You need to look at the battleground and you need to look at the potential allies. So it's not only the group which is affiliated that is uh, poisoning the struggle. You need to take a look at the, at the right institutions that you need to sway, where these institutions are a local or a national level, and you need to find a way to target this institution. Uh, late, last, and probably the most important thing is when you want to grow from local to global, uh, you need some kind of movement's identity. Take a look at the environmental movement. Uh, environmental mm -hmm. movement started as a bunch of hippies tying themselves for the fences of the nuclear power plant in the 60s. Now it's mm -hmm. a worldwide movement uh, where, where, like last week, around 1.5 million of high school students walked from their schools across the world in order to, to, aware, uh, to, to raise awareness over the climate change. How right. come? Because they had vision, because they have identity, and because they have the appeal behind their only local problem. So it's not just the war problem in one uh, Indian uh, village, which is tackled by the climate change. So we have draft. It's a global problem. We need to find a global language to talk global problems. But more important, we need to find identity. Right. It is the identity which distinguishes movement between just uh, just a stray of protest. I give you the very simple example. If you take a high school kid and show show him or her uh, a slide uh, showing two photos. One photo coming from anti-Iraq war protests, another photo coming from Woodstock, the iconic concert from, from the World Peace Movement. And you ask a kid, what do you see? Immediately, the kid distinguishes between the protest and the movement. Oh, wow. Because the, the yeah, because, you know, you, you take a look at the hippies and whether you like the music or not, they share the same music. Whether you like the way they're dressed or not, they share the way they're dressed. Whether you like their hair or not. They share the way they're wearing their hair. But more important, they, they share their view on the world. They share their view on war. They share their view on race. They share a view on free love. They share the, the things far behind that just one event which brings them together. If you take a look at anti-Iraq war protests, you will just see a bunch of groups with their own identities coming to use this opportunity to recruit more for their own groups. 
mm. but this is not the movement identity. So if you really want to talk about the, about the racial problem in U.S., you need to go far behind just Baltimore type of ghettos where people are, are exposed to the real life problems and find a way to build the movement which talks to people, people countrywide, which try to take a look at the language, take a look at the division of the society and take a look at the, at the real causes, in my, in my opinion, of this yeah. problem. And, and this is the social distance. Mm-hmm. I think it is the social distance between the members of deprived groups in U.S. and the members of privileged group in the U.S. And that social distance builds the situation in which the security forces are going into this deprived uh, neighborhoods and they are perceived as being the occupying force. Mm. And from their own point of view, when they go there, they go there with a the feeling that they are going to patrol in Fallujah, Iraq. Mm, so this yeah. is the social distance, which is the real enemy within this problem. And we need to find a way for to find the dialogue, but we also need to find the institutions that will bridge the social distance. Yeah, that's so that's so powerful. I just have a couple more questions for you. And as you talk about this, this strategy, there are a lot of ordinary people that want to be a part of a movement, but when they hear these kinds of things, it intimidates them because they don't want to be the organizers, but they want to be a part. So what would you say to those people who say, I want to be a part of the change, but I don't want to be an organizer? I'll tell that person to watch The Lord of the Rings and take a look <laughs> at, at how one, one of the, well, that, well, that's a very popular blockbuster. I would I'd rather ta- get, have them read the book, but the book is quite long. Well, basically yeah. what happens in, in that, and my favorite, favorite kid's book is that you have a bunch of people that are absolutely unfit to lead, absolutely uninterested in world's politics, but for some reasons they're in an in a eye of the storm when it comes to the change. And each single one of us can represent the Hobbit, uh, a very laid-back creature interested in good food and good drinking that doesn't want wow. to be the organizer and the leader of the change, but somehow there was nobody else to take uh, uh, that ring to Mordor. It happened in Serbia. We figured out that the opposition will not end Milosevic, the international community will not end Milosevic, and that we are going to live in this in this horror until we take things into our hands. So anybody can be a leader, anybody can be a social mobilizer. And in fact, it's a very rewarding thing because it gets you in touch with really interesting people and it gives a new meaning to your life. So for people standing on the fence, I will, first of all, uh, let them go and take a three-minute TED talk by a guy named Derek Sievers, How to Start a Movement. Yes. And you'll find the shirtless guys dancing and then the first follower and the second follower. And yes, if you don't want to be the leader, find a person who does something extraordinary and be the follower. Because the, it is the first follower that transforms the no-nut into leader. And it's also the first follower who shows others how to follow. So... Don't be ashamed if you don't want to be a leaders, but if you are finding somebody who is doing something really important for the social change, whether it is keeping your local officials accountable, building the racially more equal society, building the economically more equal society, uh, go there and try to follow and then try to learn the system of the organization and read books and bring some knowledge from the nonviolent movement into it. And you are already doing a great service to your community and uh, mankind. Wow. Well, Sergio, I am so appreciative of your time today. And I feel like we got through so much in 21 minutes. And one thing I just wanted to comment on is that I just feel the passion in in what you say. There's so much energy around what you share. And I wanted to ask you, what keeps you hopeful 
about being able to continue to change the world? Well, first of all, uh, uh, I'm 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 in in relatively regular contact with people doing this thing in in uh, very hopeless societies, and these brave people are what is giving me the hope. Brave activists coming from different countries from across the world, and then I'm seeing their successes and their failures. But overall, I see their courage and their commitment. Uh, second, and and uh, being an activist myself and working with activists for 15. Yes, I believe in in uh, different kinds of change, and I've seen impossible things happening if people come together around the dream and decide to work vigorously in order to perform the change. Uh, last but not the least importance, I'm the father of two young kids. Mama has mm-hmm. 4.5 years. Delay is a little bit older than two. And for their own sake, I need to believe that uh, if we try really hard, we can we can leave them a little better world. Yeah. How can people follow your work and keep in touch with you? Um, I'm very open to responding to the people. Uh, the way to take a look and, and many uh, different and very handy uh, free uh, resources would be to go on a web uh, page of my organization, Canvas, which is www.canvasopedia.org. Uh, probably the coolest part of it is how to build a movement in other 45 minutes. This is a series of, of uh, short, very cool animated videos which are covering the concepts like planning or nonviolent discipline or use of humor. And this is the, the best visited page uh, that we have. Uh, another way is, of course, to, to buy a book, Blueprint for Revolution. My personal email is on the back on the book and get in touch uh, with me. We, are, we can't, of course, respond to all of the people, but whoever is doing something interesting, we try to figure out how to help him or her in order to get learn more about the nonviolent social change. This is the mission of canvases this is the mission which to to which i committed last 15 years of my life wow well thank you so much again serge i'm so thrilled to share this with people and if you are listening you really should get blueprint for revolution and visit canvasopedia.com i spend a lot of time on that build a movement in 45 minutes page because the videos are so easy to to digest and to share with people it breaks it down in such an easy way so yeah thank you so much Thank you for this opportunity and keep up the changing the world. No, it doesn't have to be. Doesn't have to be this way. Doesn't have to be. No, it doesn't have to be this way. There are many things that I appreciate about the, the conversation that y'all had. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I took notes. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I mean... It's so good to be reminded of the fact that there are people out there who never thought that they'd be dedicated to this work, never thought that they'd be activists, never thought that they'd be organizers, never. I mean, who sits there and like thinks as a child, when I grow up, I want to topple a dictator. <laughs> Very like that's not yeah, a, not a thought. They that don't we teach have. you that that's a career path in elementary school. No, they don't. <laughs> they really don't. It's like doctor, lawyer, revolutionary. Like it's not. <clears throat> it's not necessarily where most of us imagine ourselves going in life. But the reality is that like ordinary people put in extraordinary circumstances, find themselves rising to the occasion. And I think that that's what Serge's interview and just the bit that I know about his life and and what he's dedicated mm-hmm. himself to in the world reflects is that ordinary people will be the response. They will respond to 
when they see injustice rise up. I mean, yeah, it's it's fascinating and beautiful and really encouraging for me to to hear and his sharing that when he was, you know, just like living his like best, like late teen, early 20 life in the 90s, mm-hmm. playing yep. in his rock band, yep. you know, that when he was seeing war break up out around him and seeing ethnic cleansing and experiencing like inflation and like the crushing like blow that like leads to like in in people's communities that yeah. he and like folks like him are just like we want to do something about this especially because they had, they didn't think that being an activist was for them i mean specifically exactly. he had said something along the lines yeah he had said something along the lines that like activism was a thing for older people which is like yep. very interesting to me because i think most folks get activated very young like it yeah. is in your teens and your your early 20s that like you do this work but it's just fascinating that like it just never occurred to him that this could be his life but it has right. become that Right. Well, I love that he thought it was boring. He thought activism was boring Mm -hmm. at first, Mm -hmm. and that's why he didn't want to. And it was actually another rock band that inspired him to get involved in that way. I think that story is super encouraging for me. And I think that what we do so often with people like Sergio is we say Mm -hmm. we put them in this like great man category where, you Mm -hmm. know, only they could have done what, what they did. And I love that. You know, his story brings it down to the ground and says, like, no, like, we were just a bunch of college kids. We started pulling pranks <laughs> in order as, as mm-hmm. acts of resistance against the dictatorship. And it turned into mm-hmm. a movement of 70,000 mm-hmm. Serbians. And they did get some training. It started at like, 11. It's, but yes. it started at 11 people. Yes, exactly. Exactly. 11, 11 to 70,000. And they made it fun. Like, that was the other thing. Mm-hmm. Like, fun and humor was such a huge part of what they were doing. Um, I don't know. That's just really, really encouraging to me, especially considering, like, the things that we're look- looking at in America. And that was also, I mean, this is why I started doing this podcast is because I, I really wanted for ordinary people to hear about these kinds of stories so that they could know that you don't have to be <laughs> you don't have to be a political scientist. You don't have to have advanced degrees in sociology. Uh, you don't have to mm-hmm. have 20 years of organizing experience. You know, we can respond to the to the big problems in our society and we can win. Absolutely. And I think that, like, it's important for us to rem- remember that, like, yeah, you can be anyone, including an artist. Yeah. That, that's one of the things that really, really encouraged me. And in, in here in Search and Speak, it's because this revolution, like this toppling happened because musicians were in conversation with one another. Mm. And then out of conversation, they created art. And that art is what helped motivate people to, to continue to seek change. Like their songs yeah. became anthems. And yeah. I, I think it's really important for us to remember like as we work towards social transformation, like in whatever context that we that we're in, that it takes all different folks, including our creatives. It takes people yes. like, you know, dedicating their creative energies in order for us to like to see the change that we want in the world. Yeah. And so like Absolutely. one of the questions that I thought of in reflecting on this was about like art stirring our consciousness and specifically mm. like wondering what forms of art have stirred our consciousnesses. 
consciousnesses. <laughs> yeah. What forms of art has stirred your consciousness? Like, what about like these works moved you to want to work for change? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that like, you know, that art making definitely comes alongside things like education. Um, yes. And that was a, a, a point that Sergio had, uh, had shared um because like this was the 90s and everything wasn't googleable um mm-hmm. and it's actually like a really interesting thing to think about right now um in in light of <laughs> some of the current social commentary that's taken yeah. place particularly within the last um well the time of recording the last like 12 to 14 hours or so so mm-hmm. yesterday <laughs> um our the u.s president got impeached it's yeah. the third time in history that we see this. And so, like, you know, it, it's just interesting seeing what people do and do not know because of our educational system yeah. um, and their engagement in it. And it's, like, it's fascinating, like, to sit and watch. Um, unfortunately, some people, like, do the work of shaming people for not knowing certain things mm-hmm. while forgetting the fact that, like, our education isn't all, um, it's, it's not equitable. And right. even though you may have had a robust physics class in the ninth, 10th, 11th, 12th <laughs> grade, does not mean that everyone was afforded those same opportunities. And so right. I think, you know, the point that Sergio makes that education is important, I guess, education is absolutely important in getting a hold of things um, in whatever way that you can, but also like making space and movement to remember that not everyone is afforded the same types of education as you. Um, and hasn't, and and you haven't necessarily had to overcome the same obstacles to being educated as other folks have. I think that's just an important thing to hold in mind. Yeah. What other questions do you have? I think that there's something to be said about making mistakes. Um, actually, Sergio says something about making mistakes and how that was as much of a, a teacher as like reading books and getting, you know, a hold of, you know, things related to you know strategy and tactics and training like just getting it wrong sometimes help them get it right yes um yes failure is such like an interesting thing to to think about because i don't think we live in a culture that makes room for people to fail on levels (laughs) i mean that on levels yes like Mm -hmm. failure is seen as i mean i don't know if we have another word for failure than failure um yeah but I mean, I think a failure is an opportunity. And like, I was really, really grateful for Sergio to have brought that up because in them messing up, in them not doing things successfully, they were able to develop different tactics, different methodologies. They got, just got to know themselves and their people better. Um, yeah. And they were able to do better because they decided to like, not just like sit in the place where they were defeated. Yeah. I, I hear you saying that they didn't give up, you know, mm-hmm. they didn't, they didn't say yeah, well, we this tried is, this thing this and, and it mm-hmm. didn't work and throw up their hands and walk away. Nope. And they were in it for a long time. Y'all like this took nine, 10 years, years. Now, yeah, nine years. Yeah. 10 years, nine, 10 years. It took a, almost a decade for, <laughs> we didn't make up our minds. <laughs> we're like, yeah, nine almost. years, 10 years, nine or 10 years, you know, almost a decade. Almost somewhere a around decade. There. <laughs> it took a while it took a while well i think the thing that just is on my mind a lot like when i say a lot i mean literally every single day is we need millions of people <laughs> we need we need million of millions of organized people 
to mm-hmm. be ready for nonviolent resistance. Mm-hmm. I don't know how that's going to happen right now. I don't know how to mm-hmm. get from point A to point B on that right now. I mean, I have some ideas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, um, you have some ideas as the <laughs> surgeon. And, and one of the points that he makes in the interview was around vision. And I think that's a thing that like we need to pay attention to. It's like what visions are being casted. And like, you know, thinking about the movements that like, you know, we want to like align ourselves with, like, what is their vision? Like yeah. we're supporting these things, but can we outline like what their goals are, what their, uh, their picture of what the, the world that needs to come should look like do we know it and if we know it like how are we communicating that to other people and and how they plan to pursue that because Mm -hmm. there are some movements that have incredible vision you know Mm -hmm. um but the means to get there you know don't doesn't doesn't fit their aspirations Mm -hmm. and also where does the vision come from Right. Like, so something Mm -hmm. I think about a lot is how, like, we can't come up with vision for tomorrow by someone thinking that they're just going to be like Moses and go up to the top of the mountain, come down, come back down and Mm -hmm. give it to the people. You know, Mm -hmm. we need that. We need a vision that captures the imagination of the American people um, or or whatever country you're in. We're talking about the U.S. right now. But um, Mm -hmm. and the way that you get that is by listening to them. (laughs) Go figure, like, listening is a part of social change. Just, who would have thought? <laughs> yeah, no, seriously, like, listening, <laughs> listening to people on, you know, who are actors in different ways. Like, yes, listening to movements, listening to people on the ground, people who are living different realities. Like, I don't know what people think that that social transformation requires, but listening is a key part of it. Yes, for like, sure. Just it, it's so key, and so if you've not yet adopted a posture of listening, like it's time. It's well past time, really. Well, I think that raises a good question. Like when you say, "If you like, who are we talking to?" Right, and this is partly why I asked Serja the question. Like, what about folks who don't want to be like leaders and organizers in this? Like people who are just saying, "Like mm-hmm. I want to be a part of this," but I mean, I. I don't want to like become, you know, the person that you're interviewing on this podcast about it. And I love his advice mm-hmm. of saying like, if you don't want to be a leader, be a follower. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Everybody plays a role. Like not everybody leads. I mean, and, and the reality is that like leading, following, um, it takes all different types of like shapes and forms. And I think this is one of the things that yes. Andre and I are hoping to accomplish here is like helping people like understand like, you know, what, where your place is and like where your role is. I mean, we're trying to encourage other people to think about this as we ourselves like do this work to consider yes. like how do we fit into the picture? Like, you yeah. know, for me, leading looks like asking questions. Like mm. it's what I'm good mm. at. I'm I'm good at forming questions. I'm good at thinking about things and encouraging people to do the same. And so whether it be like through this podcast or through like my consulting or facilitation work or in, even in my writing, like yeah. I ask questions. That's what I contribute to, to yes. this work. I like want people to think about things. Yes. And so also, I ask and it's, it, yeah. Also you are not just a wonderful facilitator, but you are sensitive to other people. 
in a way that I have not really encountered in my life. Like the way that you're able to hold space for other people is, it's a gift. And I think about the role of that in building a mass movement a lot now because of my friendship with you. Even just the way that you you handle the people that you have not met face-to-face on this show, right? Like always thinking about, well, they may not understand that, so we need to explain that. Or, you know, um, we need to make sure that we warn them that this is coming. You know, I just think about how valuable that is as groups of people decide to come together to change the world. Well, that's super meaningful. Thank you. I mean, it's because I get the fact that like movements and change don't happen without people. Yeah. It's just, it's, and so if you're not thinking about people's needs and they're wants, but really they're like needs, right? Because there's a lot of stuff that we want that's kind of superfluous and it just doesn't, it's just neither here nor there. And like, you can't meet every accommodation, but there are some core things that you can do to open up space, spaces for belonging. And yeah. I mean, that's really all I want to do with my life, right? Like in whatever work that I do and, and not even just like with my work, just like really with the totality of my life is I want to like cultivate spaces where people feel like they can belong. So it's a thing that like I do in my home. It's a thing that I do in my professional life. It's a thing that I do in my ministry when I like to claim ministry, like mm-hmm. it, mm-hmm. like cultivating spaces for belonging, like where people feel like they can be a part of and like, and, and satisfy that need to be connected to people for the sake of whatever it is like that's mm-hmm. what i want to do with my life and so like when it comes to social change like i think that that's really important as it helping people figure out like you too have a role you too have a place here because i think sometimes more often than not people are are excluded and they are pushed out and they are told that they don't fit yeah and that they don't have the ability to like lend whatever it is that they're bringing and i think that that's that's trash. Like, I don't really have a, <laughs> another word that I want to draw off other than it's garbage. Like, it's a garbage idea and it needs to be thrown away. Like, yeah. you do have value. You do have worth. And even if you think that what you have isn't much, it's still worth being into the table. Because the cool thing about tables is when everything is set up on them, no one knows who brought what. They just know that, like, we all get to eat now. There's so many things that we can do. And it all is a part of like amassing and building our people power. Thanks for listening to the Hope and Hard Pills podcast. As always, we love putting the show together for you. And this episode is really special because it's the beginning of a new era. Thanks to our new friend, Janet, and her book. Uh, Janet Ellsbach has a cookbook called Extra Helping Recipes for Caring, Connecting, and Building Community. It's a guide to the connections that are possible when we feed others in times of hardship and celebration. Everybody eats, so show up and cook. Available wherever books are sold. And Janet, one of our listeners, uh, so generously has donated some sound equipment for us, which uh, you might notice the difference in Alicia's recording quality because of the so much better, (laughs) (laughs) y'all. Because of uh, because of our work being underwritten by Janet's work. And also, um, you might notice that we're able to post a bit more about the podcast online. We might we're posting video clips again and all that kind of thing because of the generous support that Janet's given us. If you want to know how to support us, you as always, um, our producer is going to tell you how in the credits of the show. Okay, thanks for listening. Until next time, we're looking to connect with you soon. Take care.
Thank you for listening today. If you like what you heard and you haven't already, please subscribe on your favorite podcatcher. Leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts also helps us get into more ears and minds. This podcast is made possible by our fantastic patrons. Thank you for being a part of our work at Hope and Hard Pills. As usual, you'll get the uncut extended version of this episode on Patreon. If you want to join in on the work on our Patreon community, just look us up at patreon.com slash Andre Henry. To go deeper, get subscribed to our email newsletter. Head over to andrerhenry.com and click join the movement where you'll get practical insight on anti-racism and social change every week. And you'll never miss a new article, song, or podcast episode. You can also follow Andre Henry on Facebook and Instagram at TheAndreHenry. Connect with Alicia on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Alicia T. Crosby and her website, AliciaTCrosby.com. That's all for this episode of the Hope and Hard Pills podcast. See you next time. Peace.